Well, like I said, good morning again, and it is good to be back again. It, it's been essentially a month. I missed pretty much the month of March. It's all, it's all because of that, that baby back there, but it's all worth it. We're excited to ha- welcome our first into the world, and if you haven't, I know a few of you maybe haven't seen her yet, you can welcome her in the back after and say hello to Olivia. She made it on March 12th, and we are excited to have her to bring her back, getting settled back into our place with our newest member of the family. It's, it's all going really well, but we thank you again for the meals, for the support, for the prayers, and for everything. It is good to be back, though. I don't like to be out of the pulpit for too long and kind of get rusty, so I'm glad to be back. And so you can open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, as this morning we will be finally finishing this short little book of Titus. As you're turning, does the name... Adoniram Judson Jr. mean anything to you? Probably not. But Adoniram Judson was a famous American Baptist missionary who served in Burma for almost 40 years. He was born in Massachusetts in 1788, just after America won its independence, of course. And he was the son of a minister, Adoniram Judson Sr., and when he was 18, or rather 19 years old, he graduated valedictorian from what is today Brown University. But bad things always happen in college, right? While at college, Judson met a skeptic named Jacob Eames, and through his influence, Judson was compelled to abandon his childhood faith in the Lord. He became what was then known as a deist, but thankfully that would not last. One night, Judson, he was sleeping at an inn, and he could barely sleep because the person next door was just coughing so loud. They are making so much noise. They sounded like they were in agony. almost sounded like they were dying. The next morning, Judson inquired about his neighbor's health, only to find out that the person had indeed died in the middle of the night. But who was he? Unbeknownst to Judson, he was none other than Jacob Eames the same person that earlier led Judson away from the faith. Eames' death was enough to jolt Judson back to the faith, but this time in a genuine way, and he became a true follower of Christ in 1808 at the age of 20. A couple years later, by 1810, Judson had devoted himself to serve as a missionary. He had to travel to England, though, because at the time, America had no missionary sending agency. So he went to England, he received missionary support, and he was commissioned as a missionary to the Far East. He set sail on February 19, 1812, but not before marrying Anne Hazeltine on February 5, 1812. And just imagine that. Put yourself in their shoes for just a moment, because it's pretty remarkable you're young. Many would say you're in the prime of life. You can do anything you want. The future's ahead of you, but what they do? They, they gave it all up, and they forsook the comforts of their lifestyle, and they went to serve as missionaries in a faraway, completely foreign land right after they got married. Pretty amazing. They chose a life of, some would say, hardship for Christ, and that's what they got. They received a life of hardship for Christ. The pair arrived in Calcutta on June 17, 1812. But it was not long, however, before they were ordered out of India by the British East India Company. Seeing that Judson was an American missionary and the little thing called the War of 1812 just started. So they were kicked out of India and so they went to Burma. They sailed to Burma. But hardship struck Again, en route to Burma, his wife Anne miscarried their first child. Years later, they would successfully have a a second child, Roger, but he would die at eight months of age. Grief, sorrow, hardship followed Judson in his whole life. Yet he pressed on for the cause of Christ. Things were not easy in Burma. They were told that Burma, a Buddhist nation, was impermeable to Christianity, to the gospel. And to make matters worse, they couldn't speak the language at all. So for the next three years, that's what he did. He spent 12 hours a day 
doing nothing but studying Burmese. That's all he could do. That's all he had the ability to do. There were, so there was no glorious preaching ministry. He first had to learn simply to speak with these people. And many years later, in 1819, he finally held his first public meetings, first service. Fifteen people showed up out of curiosity. They all left, never to be seen again. The natives are simply indifferent to Judson's claims about one God and his son, Jesus Christ. But Judson pressed on. And if you haven't picked up on it yet, this guy, Judson, he's really the epitome of faithfulness and fruitfulness for Christ. He remained faithful to minister, evangelize, and reach out in a closed culture. And he was faithful to translate. He produced a copy of an English-Burmese grammar. He also translated the New Testament. The first believer was baptized in 1819. And by 1822, this marks 12 years of ministry there, there were 18 converts. 12 years, 18 converts. You may be thinking to yourself, that doesn't sound very good. I mean, 12 years and only 18 converts to show for that, that's not very fruitful. But to the contrary, Judson was incredibly fruitful. He was fruitful simply because he utterly devoted himself to the cause of Christ. And he was faithful to teach, preach, evangelize, minister, translate, whatever the numbers might be. He did what God called him to do. That's the definition of fruitfulness for God. He did what God called him to do. That's being fruitful. The story's not quite over. In 1824, the first Anglo-Burmese War broke out. Judson's hardship was about to increase again. Anyone who spoke English was suspected of spying, and one night Judson was violently arrested, dragged out of his home, thrown in prison, and he would suffer there for 18 months, tortured, starved, terrible conditions. And during this time, his wife, Anne, was... Remarkably courageous. And she was perhaps the only Western woman left in the whole nation. A nation that was now turning against Westerners and Christianity. And she did her best, though. She did her best to keep her husband alive, to secure his freedom, all the while nursing their third child who was born while Judson was in prison. But stress and disease took a toll on Anne. She died in 1826, and their third child died six months later. Wasn't joking. Hardship followed Judson seemingly every turn. Hardship. The war ended. Judson was freed, but now he was alone. And although grieving, he still pressed on. Nothing left to lose. So he pressed on for Christ's sake. In actuality, the war's end really made the nation more open to the gospel. And so that's what he did. He faithfully kept spreading the gospel, penetrating deeper into those remote jungles, evangelizing those tribes that had never been reached. And God blessed Judson's faithfulness and his fruitfulness. And God saw to it that his efforts were not in vain. It's not all bad news. Judson remarried. He had many children. He returned to America one time, and he was greeted almost as a celebrity. He toured the nation. He raised money for missionary support. And back in Burma, from 1834 to 1866, the Baptist church doubled every eight years. By the time of his death, he had a goal. His goal was, by the time he died, to translate the entire Bible into Burmese and to plant one church with 100 members. That was his goal. Didn't reach that goal. By the time of his death, he had indeed translated the entire Bible into Burmese. But he left behind 100 churches with 8,000 members. And today, Myanmar has the third largest population of Baptists in the world, largely thanks to Judson. And to add to that, the grammar that he made and the Bible that he translated, they're still used. They're still the standard for the region. So why do I bring this up? 
Why tell the story of Adoniram Judson? It's because he serves as an outstanding example of living a fruitful Christian life. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to just spend your life for Christ. Judson was touched by God's grace. He was transformed, and he therefore wanted to make an impact for the God who saved him. He was not content with sitting around and wasting his life. He realized what all Christians must come to realize. And think about this one. When God saves you, he doesn't just immediately kill you and take you to heaven. He could. But for really most people, he lets them live for many, many years. Why would he do that? Why would God do that? It's really just one reason. He wants you to be fruitful. Judson understood this. He was not going to waste his opportunity, waste the time he'd been given to bear fruit for God. Do you understand this? Do you get this? Or are you wasting your opportunity in life to do something for God, to bear fruit for God? Here's the thing, though. You don't have to be a missionary to be fruitful for God. It's not just for the pastors, for the teachers, for the elders, for the spiritually elite. Rather, to be faithful, simply do whatever it is that God calls you to do. Whether you're a plumber, or a lawyer, or a stay-at-home mom, or a missionary, whatever. God wants you to live fruitfully for him so long as you do live. Today, we're going to finish our study of the book of Titus. In case you're wondering, the book of Titus, it's, it's short. It's only three chapters long, but nonetheless, it took us 19 sermons to make our way through. That's because, though, there's a reason for that. Even though it's a short book, it's filled with all these lists, these very dense lists. You know what I'm talking about? And I've, I've called these lists portraits because that's, what's Paul, that's what Paul is doing. He's painting these character portraits through these lists. And they're so helpful because they illustrate what the Christian life should look like. And throughout our weeks in Titus, we've observed the portrait of the elder, the portrait of the false teacher, the portrait of the older generation, the portrait of the younger generation, the portrait of the spiritual leader, and the portrait of the servant. As Paul looks for words to end this letter to Titus, we come to find yet another helpful portrait. There are two portraits to be exact to observe here. The portrait of the fruitful and the portrait of the unfruitful. But they form a fitting conclusion to Titus, encompassing the major theme that we've observed time and time again. And what is it? What is that central, that huge theme to this letter to Titus that we've hit on so many times? God has saved you by his grace, through Christ Jesus, apart from works. But now, because of that saving work, and as a result of that saving work, what does God want you to do? Get to work. Works don't save you. Christian living doesn't save you. But for those who have been transformed and touched by God's grace, God wants you now to live godly and fruitful lives. And perhaps to drive this point home one last time, Paul concludes his letter highlighting those who are fruitful and those who are not fruitful. And so this is a fitting conclusion to Titus. We're going to cover more verses than usual this morning to finish this out. But even still, I want to keep the outline very simple, focus on the content. So let's get started from Titus chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. I want to give you two final portraits to help guide your Christian life. Two final portraits to help guide your Christian life. The first one is the portrait of the fruitful. The portrait of the fruitful. Look at verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have 
believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Now I know it's been a month since we last looked at the book of Titus, in particular chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. But if you remember, there we encountered these essential reminders to the Christian faith. Three in particular. First, we were reminded of who we were before salvation. And we learned we also once were lost and wretched and sinful people. We also once were just like the world in our wickedness and rebellion and unbelief. We were just like them once. But secondly, we were reminded of what happened to us in salvation. By the unilateral intervention of God, he saved us. And those were three precious words that you can't bear to forget. He saved us. He saved us. We'll never be the same. We were justified. We were redeemed. We were reconciled. We were made new. We were regenerated. We were adopted. We were saved. All based on the the precious atoning work of Christ on the cross. Any and all who turn from their sins and turn toward Christ can likewise be saved like this. And then thirdly, we were reminded of who we now are today as a result of that salvation. Namely, heirs of eternal life. We're new people as a result of what God has done for us, and we have a glorious future ahead of us. And so it's in regards to these three reminders. Collectively, you you put those together, verses 3 through 7. In regards to that, Paul now says, verse 8, what? This is a trustworthy statement. Literally, he says, this is a faithful message. These are true words. Truer words have never been spoken. Christians must constantly remember who they were before salvation, what happened to them at salvation, and who they now are as a result of salvation, past, present, future. It's a trustworthy statement. And, verse 8, what what does he say next? Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. He's instructing Titus to confidently proclaim these reminders. He's saying, tell the people, tell them with confidence the the precious, the, the faithful, the true gospel. Tell them. As a faithful teacher, Titus, he's bound to speak the truth. And he needs to do this with with a confidence, with an authority. Woe is him if he fails to confidently tell people the truth. Remember, the, the island of Crete was seemingly swarming with false teachers. And so Titus must speak with greater confidence than them. They're going around, they're spreading falsehood, They're doing it with confidence. So far be it from Titus to speak with less confidence than them who don't have the truth. We all remember Harold Camping's predictions about the rapture on May 21st of last year. And even today, it's it's amazing how false teachers like this can be so confident in their false assertions. With absolute confidence, he told everyone to to stake their lives on the fact that the rapture was going to happen on May 21st. And he even spent millions of dollars advertising this. Which, actually, is pretty easy to do when it's not your own money. There's a a funny side story. There's a guy who made an offer to Harold Camping. He said, on May 22nd, that's the day after the, the rapture is supposed to happen, he offered Camping, he said, hey... I will buy all of your radio stations for $10,000 on May 22nd. You're not going to need them. You're going to be gone. You're going to be raptured. I'll still be here. So I'll buy them from you for for 10 grand. Of course, camping refused to sell. But even still, he preached with 100% confidence in his prediction and his false teaching. And it's, it's amazing. And the point here is that if unbelievers or false teachers are going to make their assertions with such great confidence, shouldn't we speak all the more confidently about the truth 
about what's actually true. And God wants you, in turn, to be confident in Him and His truth and His promises. And knowing that we have the true gospel, not according to our own imaginations, but according to God's word, then you of all people should speak most confidently. And far be it from you to be outshined by those who do not know the truth. And likewise, Titus must speak confidently of the things he had learned and received in Christ. But there's more here. What's the big deal with all this? Why is it so important to speak confidently? What's what's the big deal? Verse 8. I want you to speak confidently. Why? So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Here we go again. Here's our our big theme in Titus again. This theme of, of good deeds. The reason we need all these reminders, the reason we need to keep the gospel in the front of our minds, the reason we need to speak confidently about it, especially to believers, is so that the people of God will be careful to engage in good deeds. This is the primary implication of the gospel. And and notice how this is more for believers than unbelievers. This is for believers here. You're saved. So what? You're saved. Now what? The answer to these questions is, Good deeds. There were all these people back then calling themselves Christians, just like today. But they were, they're sitting around. They're doing nothing. They're inactive in working out their salvation. Their lives did not display any of the positive fruits of righteousness in Christ. God didn't save you, though, to do nothing. He saved you to bear fruit... For his name. These people needed a fire lit under them so that they would function properly as believers. And perhaps today that's what you need. I must have said this ten times already in Titus. Let's just make it eleven. If you need to, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. God saves you by grace through faith in Christ apart from works. But why? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For, he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would what? So that we would walk in them. That's why you were saved. One of the primary reasons God saved you and hasn't taken you to heaven yet is that you would bear fruit in good deeds for him. It's just the outflow of the gospel. This is merely the unavoidable result of being saved in Christ. You work for God. If you're out there, you call yourself a Christian, but you don't work for God. You don't bear the positive fruit of righteousness that comes as a result of faith. What's going on? What's the deal? Have you truly been saved? Now, I know this is nothing new for you all. You've heard this several times. It's not hard to grasp as well. It's pretty simple stuff. You get that works should not be the root of salvation. They should be the fruit of salvation. And during our time in Titus, we've probably talked about this in half of our sermons. So you know this. You've heard this. And so the only thing left for me to ask really is, what are you doing about it? So now you've heard 19 sermons on Titus. So many of them highlighting this theme of working for God as a consequence of your salvation. What do you have to show for it? What do you have to show for it? Have you been merely a hearer of the word? Or have you been a doer also? Seeking to apply everything you've learned. And you know God is looking for the doers. And get this. Yes, you know all this well. But doesn't that just make you more accountable to God because of your knowledge? Indeed it does. Of all people, you at this church are highly accountable to God to live as he calls you to live. You have very few excuses. So back to verse 8. Are you being careful, he says, being careful to engage in good deeds? 
And to be careful here means to be intent on something. You're taking the lead. You're putting yourself forward. You're, You're busying yourself with good deeds. Are you being diligent to bear fruit for God or are you just sitting around doing nothing, not really actively pursuing bearing fruit for the Lord? Remember, zealously pursuing God like this not only pleases him, but as verse 8 says, this is good, this is profitable for a man. This is good for you too. God gets glory, you get benefit when you bear fruit for him. God wants you to be a fruitful disciple. Listen to John 15, verse 8. Jesus said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. There's the proof. You want to know if you're a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ? Bear good fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Paul was a fruitful disciple. Titus was a fruitful disciple. And they, they were not wasting their days on earth. They, they captured their days. They put them to good use for the cause of Christ. But they weren't alone. They were not the only fruitful disciples. In fact, in this passage, there are more. There are more portraits of fruitful believers here. Look down at verse 12. Where, where are they? Titus 3, verse 12. When I send Artemis, or Tychicus, to you, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Verse 13, diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. So here we encounter some more people. Let's talk about them. First, we've got Artemis and Tychicus. We, we don't know anything about Artemis from the New Testament. Nothing. Tradition, however, tells us that he was one of the 70 original disciples. Could be true, we don't know. But we do know a little bit more about this guy, Tychicus, or Tychicus, however you want to pronounce it. He was one of Paul's traveling companions on his missionary journeys, and he was with Paul during his first Roman imprisonment. Remember, the first time Paul was in Rome, he wrote Ephesians, he wrote Colossians, and it's very likely, actually, that this guy, Tychicus, was the carrier of those letters to those churches. The fact that he's mentioned here at the end of Titus implies that after leaving Paul in prison, he went, he did his mission, Paul got released, and then the two met up again after Paul was freed. So they rallied together again. This time now, in Titus, Tychicus is being sent out one more time, possibly to replace Titus on the island of Crete so that Titus can come visit Paul. Tychicus pops up one more time in the New Testament. Some time after this letter was written, he joins Paul one more time during Paul's second Roman imprisonment. So he's with Paul during the first one. He went out, did a mission. He met Paul after he was released, went out, likely to Crete, did a mission. Paul goes back to jail. Tychicus comes back to him. And in 2 Timothy 4.12, Paul says, one last time, he's going to send this guy again. He's going to send Tychicus, this time to Ephesus, to replace Timothy so that Timothy can come and spend some time with Paul during his final days in prison because Paul knew he was going to be executed. So, needless to say, this guy, and presumably Artemis as well, they were faithful. They were loyal. They served. And they were fruitful. They were willing to devote their lives to just doing whatever, doing whatever God called them to do through their church leaders. And Paul sends these two, or one or the other, to Titus, so that Titus, he says, could in turn visit him at Nicopolis, which is where he was spending the winter. The city, Nicopolis, is likely on the west coast of Greece. And it could have been Paul's potential launching point for further travels west. You remember, he wanted to go to Spain. This could have been his launching point for Spain. We don't know. And he says he's just hanging out there. He's spending the winter there. And if you remember, traveling by sea on the Mediterranean during winter was hazardous to your health. You would likely die. Paul already once was shipwrecked 
He made this mistake. It wasn't his choice, but he already once was shipwrecked for traveling in the winter. This time he says, you know what? I'm not going to risk it. I'm going to camp out in Nicopolis. You just meet me here. I'll send you these guys. That's what's going on. There's a few more instructions. Look at verse 13. He says, Then diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And here we have two more guys, two more faithful and fruitful servants. First, there's Zenos the lawyer. We don't know much about him except that he was a lawyer. Whether he was an expert in Jewish law or Roman law, we don't really know. But it's also mentioned here Apollos. And this is the same Apollos that we know a lot about from the New Testament. This was the same Apollos who was known for being mighty in the scriptures. He was described as being a learned and eloquent man, fervent in spirit, accurately teaching the things concerning Jesus. And this time it's likely that this pair, Zenos and Apollos, that they were the couriers of this letter to Titus. They likely took this letter to him. And you think about it, the two of them would have been a pretty formidable team. This might actually explain some of the false teacher situation on Crete. You know, Paul, for whatever reason, seemed like he felt the need to send these two big guns to deliver this message to Titus and Crete. One of them is an expert in the law. One of them is an expert in the scripture. And together, they would have been a formidable team. They could have easily refuted any false teaching that was going on on Crete. Anyway, the church is on Crete. They were to diligently help these men, give them money, supplies, whatever they needed on their journey, and help them out. You say, we've got four men here. Artemis, Tychicus, Zenos, Apollos. And even though we just get the slightest glimpse of who they are here and what they do, we can still draw out one thing, that they were faithful and fruitful servants of Christ. And they serve as portraits of fruitful living for Christ. And why is that? It's because they were doing it. They were living for Christ. They were spending their lives for him. These were difficult times. I mean, traveling large distances like this was dangerous. You, you could die. It was not easy to just travel hundreds of miles. They didn't have to do that. They didn't have to minister like this or listen to Paul like this. They could have just stayed at home, chosen an easy life, kicked back, prospered. But they didn't because they wanted to be fruitful. And you should follow their lead. And isn't that what verse 14 says? Look at verse 14. Right after this, he says, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be, what? Unfruitful. Keyword verse 14, is also. These, these four men, they were doing it, and in the same way that they were fruitful, in the same way that they were doing good deeds and serving others, in the same way that they were meeting pressing needs, verse 14, you should do the same. Now it's your turn. You be fruitful and serve the Lord. It's not just for pastors, elders, the elite few. It's for all of God's people. In fact, to the contrary, it's impossible for just the pastors and elders to, to meet all the pressing needs. There's just too many needs. We can't do it alone. The people must join together to meet pressing needs. Just share the burden. This is what it looks like for you to be fruitful. Again, you don't have to be a missionary to make it happen. Just think about wherever you are, whatever you do, how can you serve others in Christ's name for the glory of God? How can you serve the body at church? How can you busy yourself with God's work? How can you point people to Christ? How can you live righteously? That's it. That's just what it is. It's what it looks like to be fruitful for him. So think about these things. Do these things so that you might join these men and share in their portrait of fruitful Christian living. We've got transition now. There's another portrait here, sandwiched in between this portrait of the fruitful, we find secondly now, it's a portrait of the unfruitful. The portrait of the unfruitful in verses 9 through 11. Look at verse 9. But avoid 
foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So here is what you want to avoid. You want to avoid the unfruitful, and you want to avoid being the unfruitful. Let's start at verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. He says, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. So here he lists four categories, four things to avoid. The first is foolish controversies. What's in mind here are those theological discussions or debates that arise in the struggle against false teachers. A theological investigation is necessary for maturity, for growth in the church. But when you're interacting with unbelievers or with false teachers who do not value God's word, then such discussions are fruitless and futile. And Paul has a lot to say about this in the pastoral epistles. Again, since we're close, just turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and look, look at verse 16. Second Timothy 2.16, he says, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And look at chapter 2, verse 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. It's the same thing. It happened all over. These were worthless debates. They were labeled as foolish. That word for foolish in the Greek, that's where we get our word moronic from. It's just a waste of time. That There's a place for humble, honest discussion among two believers, trying to figure out what the, what the Bible says. There's a place for that. But when you're dealing with unbelievers or false teachers, it is fruitless to engage in their debates. If you want to know what this looks like today, just go on the Internet. Go to the blog world, and there it is. Just usually younger men are spending countless hours with these worthless online chat room debates arguing about eschatology or predestination or whatever, and it's just fruitless. But instead of engaging in fruitless debates about error, the point he's making here is you just simply need to proclaim the truth. Don't major in error, major in the truth, and tell them the truth. That's the only thing that can change their hearts anyway. Second, Paul says to avoid genealogies. Now, he's not saying boycott genealogies in the Old Testament. You know, reading through the Old Testament. He's not saying, okay, you can skip, so you can skip the genealogies. No, but rather the Jews of the day, they really took their genealogies to a whole new level. I mean, they were making stuff up. They were adding things. They were interpreting them spiritually. They were giving them an untrue significance. Again, Paul encountered the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. He says, pay no attention to myths and Endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. What these people were doing is basically just making stuff up. They took the genealogies and they were adding these false significances to it, these false interpretations. You know, oh, that's deep. But they were just making it up. It's called speculation. And the point that Paul is making here is that they're just missing the point. They were missing the point. Scripture is not here for that. It's like, I don't know if you heard this, those, the story of those old medieval theologians who had nothing better to do than sit around all night and, and debate how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. The point is, you're missing the point. And that's the point. It's not important. Don't focus on what's unknown. Don't focus on worthless speculation that you add to Scripture. Rather, focus on the truth as revealed in God's word. Third, we are told to avoid the strife or the fighting that results from these foolish debates. Speaking of these people, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.4, they have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, Evil suspicions. You know the MO of these people. They, they just love debating, arguing, 
proving that someone else wrong. It's just what they do. It's like their hobby. They just want to go around, convince people, argue with people. He says they have a morbid interest in controversial questions. That's just what they do. Anyone who has ever taken part in one of these foolish controversies or worthless debates, you know what this is talking about. They always somehow end in conflict. They always somehow end in an argument, in strife. Both sides are usually motivated by pride. They want to prove the other person wrong. They want to win the day and, and prove their case. And God never honors such prideful motivations. And So avoid this. Avoid these arguments. It's just pointless. And last, he says, avoid disputes about the law. And this is talking about the Mosaic Law. And you can really see the Jewish nature of the opposition coming through here on the island of Crete. There were these Judaizers. They were alive and well. And they were making life hard for the believers on Crete, misrepresenting the Jewish law. And the basic point here overall, Paul is just saying, look, just don't get sucked into this stuff. Don't get sucked into these debates, these arguments that are not fruitful. Avoid the strife, the fighting. Just don't get sucked into the teachings of false teachers. Don't get sucked in. Don't participate. Why? Back in verse 9, because they're unprofitable and worthless. That's what he says, unprofitable and worthless. And notice the contrast here in Titus 3, verse 8. Believers should be busy with good deeds because this is profitable. But, verse 9, at the same time, you should avoid controversies and disputes because these are unprofitable. You see the contrast of this verse? It's a check on your priorities. What are you going to do with your time? Are you going to waste your time engaging in fruitless verbal debates that go nowhere? Or are you actually going to serve others and meet needs and actually bear fruit for God? You see the difference? God obviously wants you to focus on that which is truly fruitful, not wasting your time with that which is unfruitful. Again, you have to remember the circumstances in Crete. As we learned in chapter 1, there were not a few but many false teachers circulating around. There was many. And they didn't even have pure motives. They were teaching their falsehood out of selfish motivation. And flip back to chapter 1 real quick. Chapter 1, verse 16. What does he say about them? Chapter 1, verse 16, these false teachers, he says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. There's your portrait of unfruitfulness. And this is why they need to be refuted, chapter 1, verse 9. They need to be silenced, chapter 1, verse 11. And they need to be reproved, chapter 1. Verse 13. Point here is, look, you don't play around with false teaching. You don't play around with false teaching. You don't tolerate it. Such false believers and false teachers, they're not to be engaged in argument. They're to be reproved. That's it. They must never be given a platform in the church to spread their falsehood. Never. When you encounter people like this in the church, false teachers who claim to follow Christ, first, you reject their arguments and you reprove them so that they will be sound in the faith. But if they persist in their error, if they seek to take other people down with them, then you no longer reject just their arguments. You reject them. And this is exactly what Paul says back in verse 10 of Titus chapter 3. What does he say? Chapter 3, verse 10. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. You know, it's one thing to avoid engaging false teachers in debates outside the church. But what do you do in these false teachers who, of course, they claim to be normal Christians, what do you do when they infiltrate the church, when they want to come to church? Well, if they're willing to sit, listen, respect the leadership, and not cause division, that's one thing. But if they seek to influence and divide the flock, they must be dealt with. 
and here the cause to reject have nothing to do with those who are rebellious and he says factious. A factious person is one who is stubbornly self-willed and seeks to divide. They refuse to submit to church leadership and instead they place their own ideas above the, the truth. Self-will is the chief culprit behind their actions where everyone is right and they alone or rather, everyone is wrong and they alone are right, of course. And strong words are reserved for such people and strong warnings are given as well. Just listen here, you don't have to turn. Romans 16, 17 through 18. Where at the end of that letter, Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned. And turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Watch out, he says. Keep your eye on them. Implying they're in the church. But if they're causing division, turn away from them. Back in Titus, the factious person is given two warnings. And a gracious desire to encourage the other person to repent and to turn from the error that they're teaching, they are warned or admonished in regards to their error. But if they refuse, they cannot be tolerated any longer. Why? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And like a wildfire, if unchecked, false teaching will spread and will destroy the church. And, and understand this. This teaching here in Titus 3, it's not the same as church discipline in Matthew 18. Church discipline is reserved for those caught in sin and the intent is restorative, to restore them. But this instruction in Titus 3 is for those who persist in subversive, rebellious, and destructive behavior and the intent is protective. The leaders have, of the church have a responsibility before God to protect the sheep from any falsehood. And so if any person persists in trying to subvert the church's doctrine, they must simply be removed from the assembly. Two warnings, and then they're gone. When a person gets to that point, they're to be put out of the church or rejected. But such a condemnation, it's really just a recognition of the person's own self-condemnation, as verse 11 says. You know, by persisting in their error... And rejecting the truth, they've condemned themselves. The church is merely recognizing their own self-condemnation and removing them from their influence. Verse 11 says they are perverted, meaning they, they twist or they pervert the truth. It says they're sinning, which means they're rebelling against authority. And, and so they stand self-condemned. And their removal from the congregation is fully justified. You may think, that sounds kind of serious. And you're right. It is serious. It's because any false teaching is serious. Great or small, it doesn't matter. False teachers have the ability to affect a person's eternity. And there's nothing more serious than that. False teachers want to prevent people from finding the narrow path leading to the narrow gate. They hide the true way and instead funnel the masses to the broad gate that leads to destruction. And so anyone like this who shrouds the gospel and teaches contrary to the truth must be dealt with. Again, I'll just read this. You don't have to turn here. But Acts chapter 20, verse 28, the, the, the plea, the injunction given to the elders as Paul left Ephesus. He told them, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And get this, verse 30, he says, And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, he says, be on the alert. That's the job. It's the job of leadership. There's going to be people coming from the outside. There's going to be people coming from the inside just trying 
to subvert the truth. Great or small, whatever they're teaching. If it's false, it must be warned once, twice, and simply removed to protect the sheep. We go on, but we'll leave it here. We'll leave it at this. There's one more verse in Titus. So let's just read this now. Titus chapter 3, verse 15, and, and finish it up. Titus 3, verse 15, he says, All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul ends with a customary greeting filled with love and a final benediction of grace be with you all. And that's a fitting end because that's what we need. It's what you need. That's what I need. And we need God's grace in our lives daily to guide us, to enable us to live like this. We can't do this. We, we can't be and match up to this portrait of the fruitful on our own. We can't. But we need God's grace. And he can get us there. God's grace is sufficient for you. And get this, God, God's grace is already supplied to you in salvation through the Spirit. So you already have what you need. Therefore, as we leave here today, let us just join ourselves together, dedicating ourselves in our lives to living fruitfully for him. Wherever you are, whatever you do, just do what he calls you to do. Bear fruit for him. And in this God is greatly pleased. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you again, indeed praising you for the grace that has been delivered to us in Christ through the Spirit, by your choosing. You have saved us, we thank you. You sanctify us, we thank you. And now, Lord, you enable us to bear fruit. So just help us. Help us to leave here doing that. May we give you our lives. You know, we may not be like Adoniram Judson, missionaries in a foreign land, but wherever we are at, for myself and all those here, Help us just spill our lives on the altar of sacrificing it to you. May we give you our lives in pursuing holiness. May we fight sin. May we serve others. May we participate at church. All the things you call us to do. It's a fitting conclusion to our time in this wonderful letter of Titus. Just a reminder, we're saved. Now may we spend whatever days you give us left on this earth to work for you. That's where our joy is found. That's where our satisfaction is found. It's in bearing fruit for you. So help us to do that as we leave here. We we praise and thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.